So I've got some kind of half-baked thoughts that I'll share today from the scriptures for this week's lesson. Um, And I'm thinking about these in connection with having recently read Paul Reeves' wonderful Deseret book published, Let's Talk About Race and Priesthood, and having had some discussions uh, about this. Um, And I'm also bringing to this um, some notes and thinking about a workshop and a couple books that I read by Dr. Uh, Willie James Jennings, who's a Yale Divinity School professor and a Baptist minister. So the scriptures that really stood out to me in this week's reading include 1 James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Also James chapter 2, verse 9. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin. Then 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, where in verse 22, it talks about how seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and this is our, again, like a well-known verse, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And then the last uh, verse, it comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 2 and 3. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. As I think about the description of the chosen generation in connection with James, um, I think it's really um, helping us to see that uh God's chosen are people who ask questions, who move from darkness into light, who um, are not determined by, you know, some kind of, you know, set, established mastery of knowledge or understanding, but instead um, who are people who live in wonder and who are trying to work through um, the problems and challenges of real life. The, the question really is about kind of the journey to know and to be uh, in relationship, learning about mercy, learning about how God um, interacts and feels about other people um, that are coming to better understand what it means to be kind of in the middle of a flock and how to be an example um, and not just, you know, Um, assert some status as a lord over God's heritage, but instead are are reacting kind of to to real human needs and developing relationships and the kind of love that God has for for all of his children. Uh, Willie Jennings talks about, uh, he says, we turn God's love into a kind of static reality. And he says, like, the message really is, is that God loves. And we see this reflected in the life of Christ and how he unfolds his gospel. 
um, and that it's happening in crowds of people, uh, and that um, he draws attention to, um, you know, this picture of Jesus and the crowds and how he's always kind of surrounded by people, and he allows himself to be touched and to be moved and to react to um, that individual uh, kind of heartfelt um, struggles um, of uh, folks who are hurting and hungry and who need different things from him. Um, and that it's really kind of in this picture of Jesus with the crowd that we come to understand what the gospel is all about. Jennings reminds us that when we're baptized, we're baptized into a community, into a crowd, um, and we're asked to create our lives around that community. Uh, and that fits with what Peter says, uh, what it says in First Peter, right? Feed the flock of God, which is among you. Like, and that being a disciple, being one of God's chosen is really about like being part of this flock and responding to the needs of fellow strangers and fellow pilgrims. So from these scriptures, I feel um, kind of even more inspired to um, to release myself to the crowd, um, to a way of being in the world and seeing the world that recognizes the great love that the Lord has for all of um, his children, um, and, and to realizing that kind of living and struggling together, um, asking questions, allowing myself to be moved, um, by the pains and joys of others um, is the way to to more fully uh, be a disciple of Christ. My scripture comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 in the NRSV translation. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I like that passage because there are two key words that sometimes get mixed up with our modern day language. The first is priesthood. Within the LDS context, we think of this priesthood as an ecclesiastical position that men have uh, in certain offices. But what I like about this passage is it harkens back to how early Mormons would have understood the term priesthood, which is in the terms of the wonderful scholar Jonathan Stapley, a cosmological a connection between lots of people together. It's not something you exercise as an individual. It's a community or group that you're part of. And the second word I like from this verse is a holy nation. This nation is not a country. It's not an allegiance. It's not a political entity or a state, but it's a community like priesthood. It's something of, of a self-chosen group of people to be together. In fact, the very first book I ever wrote was on how people conceive of these ideas of nations, these imagined communities. And so what strikes me about this verse is it emphasizes the need for us to be these selected communities, not because we're born in a certain area, not because we have certain allegiances to ideological or political entities, not because we are members of the state, but because we are a much larger community, a family 
a group of people who disagree on lots of things, but still try to make the world better and make our communities better and look out for one another. And so that, I think, is a beauty of at least the early Mormon conception of priesthood, that we are binding together in Joseph Smith's memorable phrase, these webs of connections, an interconnected, consanguineous world of people bound to one another uh, through love and adoration and not through individual skill or um, predilections or things like that. So I, I love this verse because it emphasizes that we as a group of imperfect beings uh, who fall short all the time, who are misunderstood and misunderstand one another, can still come together and form a community to emphasize God's love through each other. And to me, that's at the heart of what it means to be a member of these faith-like congregations, whether it be imaginary like we do through our online discussions or in local congregations. So that's my message and why I love uh, Peter's call for us to be a holy priesthood and a holy nation, not recognizing these limiting ecclesiastical offices or structures and not our political allegiances to a state, but our love to our fellow brothers and sisters. So let's say something about First Peter verse 1. Um, this is the one that really struck me as I was reading it through because uh, it says some interesting things. It starts, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's it. Now, th this kind of opening is really common in a lot of the epistles. Paul says similar things in uh, the beginnings of his, all of his epistles. Um, but I'm interested in who Peter says he is writing to, or I suppose um, who the author of this, uh, writing under the name Peter, says he is writing to. Many of Paul's epistles say, you know, Paul, an apostle, um, to the Romans or to the churches of, of Corinth or whatnot. Peter writes here to the strangers, um, the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This is all kind of what the place we now call Turkey, all of these places. Um, but who are the strangers? Now, we might also translate strangers here as pilgrims, exiles, foreigners, my Greek is bad, but uh, the Greek, because I looked it up, the Greek here is peripodemos. Um, this is, in a sense, right, um, Christians who have been scattered. Uh, we might look here at Acts chapter 8, which describes Christians scattered out of Jerusalem after the persecutions uh, that Paul measures. But also, um, periodically throughout the Hebrew Bible, God's people are referred to as the scattered, um, those who are driven out of their homes, um, those who are isolated, who are refugees in a sense. And of course, right, this may be true in the literal sense here. That is, maybe these are Christians who are driven out of um, Jerusalem because of persecutions, just as perhaps um, the children of Israel in the book of Exodus might be called uh, pilgrims, the scattered, the exiles, as well, but it's also maybe true in a spiritual sense as well. These are people who are 
lost who are wondering. Um, in the very next verse, though, um, Peter says, these people, these scattered, are, quote, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I, and I think that's significant, right? The, both elect and foreknowledge. That is to say, God's people are scattered. Um, that is to say, they're lostness, their exile is not because of anything they did themselves. Um, and they don't lose their election, their favored status in the eyes of God because they are in exile, because they are wandering, because they are now strangers. In fact, in a sense, right, it is those people, those people who are strangers, who are exiles, um, who are wanderers, um, who are God's chosen, that is, his chosenness and their status are not incompatible. And indeed, even perhaps, as Peter says here, elect according to the foreknowledge, um, their scatterness, their status as strangers is part of their election. It is what God has chosen for them. Um, and why might that be, right? In, in a sense, I think we might think um, that perhaps it's possible to think that being scattered and being dispersed, being exiles, cultivates in us right the sense of sympathy, of humility um, that is prerequisite to being the sort of people um, that we are called to be um, throughout the Bible. That is, people who, like Christ, go after the poor, go after those who are scattered. Um, themselves. Um, because, why is that? Because as Matthew 24 says, of course, right, that in those people um, we see Jesus. Um, Jesus is himself exiled, scattered, um, foreign, a pilgrim, um, not necessarily comfortable in this world because he knows, right, that the world God wants him to be in is very unlike this one. Um, it is one of uh, equality and righteous and righteousness and justice um, for all people. That's the world he calls us to. That's the world these early Christians sought to build. And we see a lot then in that word, strangers, um, in First Peter chapter 1. Hello, my name is Molly Banyan, and I'm really pleased to wish you a happy Thanksgiving and to share a few thoughts about the book of James. This month, I will be at dinner with some Jewish friends of over 53 years. I love them dearly. Next month, I'll visit my best friend of over 50 years. She's also Jewish. Dialogue owes a debt of gratitude to the lovely Jewish woman who was our business manager for many years. Last month, a young friend of a dozen years came out of the goodness of his heart to help my husband and me to witterize our home. He is a devoted Muslim. We couldn't think more highly of him, and we love him too. Many of you also have treasured Jewish uh, and Muslim friendships. We're all grieved by current events, and we're all concerned for everyone in danger. Even those in what would seem to be the safest of places are living in fear. I've been teaching youth Sunday school through the current Old and New Testament cycle. My goals have included 
<clears throat> introducing 12 to 18-year-olds to four things. One, the great themes of the scriptures, the big pictures. Two, the contradictions in the scriptures. Three, to the enlightening world of new translations and a better understanding of the words as they were originally written. And to that end, I'm going to use Thomas Weymouth's translation of the New Testament with you today. And four, to see cultural context and to separate it from doctrine. Why these goals? So that the youth will not be derailed by a word or a phrase or a story, which doesn't fit in the biggest picture of all, that of a loving God who asks only that we show our love for him by accepting his grace and proving that acceptance by loving all his children as he does. James illuminates this most important great theme. As a class, we've studied conflicts between the Bible's very first families, between Jewish groups, Jewish groups and their neighbors, between the neighbors themselves, thousands of years of hate and brutality. The Bible is pretty bloody. Throughout the New Testament, we've seen conflicts between Gentile and Jewish Christians. James, the brother of Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem Christians, writes his epistle to the 12 tribes. When he advises them in 1.5 to ask God for wisdom, he's reinforcing the importance of their Judaism, even to the consideration of their Christianity. What God could they ask except the only God they know, the Jewish God? James is introducing a Christian mode of praying by asking them to do the praying themselves rather than as they were accustomed to asking the priest to do the praying. But it is to their God, not to a new God. A new, God, a new way, but not a new God. James promises that they will, quote, receive the crown of life, which God promises to those who love him. End of quote. God still loves the 12 tribes, of course. And further on in 117, he says, quote, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, descending with the Father of lights, for whom there is no variation or shadow of change. The God of Abraham has not changed. He promises his gifts, including the greatest, his grace, to all. But we as children have been slow to understand. To those who accept Christ as their Savior, James advises in to one, quote, my brothers and sisters, do not possess partiality in your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. End of quote. In other words, treat everyone the same. Here he takes them back to Deuteronomy 117. You must not be partial in judging, hear out to small and great alike. End of quote. I teach the youth that they cannot read the New Testament well without checking the Old Testament references. They're everywhere, tying Jews and Christians together. We worship the same God, the Jewish God, the Muslim God, the Christian God, the God of Abraham, God in the God we cannot truly love without loving all our neighbors. But we don't do that very well. None of our hands are clean. In 3.9, James writes, quote, no one is able to tame the tongue. It is a tireless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's image. Curses dominate our news. 
social media demoralizes us. As we see friends we respect use demeaning language for those with whom they disagree. As responsible citizens and as brothers and sisters, we seek solutions for peace and freedom, but we cannot curse others in the struggle. We can seek justice differently, but we cannot admit the deadly poison of hate in so doing. October 7th, we began a new chapter in the long book of interreligious evil. Can we be principled and impartial? Can we cease cursing even our enemies? Can we love our neighbors? One of my Jewish friends has spent much of his life working in the World Bank, the State Department, and in private foundations, trying to bring about greater peace and prosperity all over the world, but especially in Muslim Africa. He has lived and lives a life of hope, but today, for the first time, he feels hopeless. Must all be hopeless? Is it hopeless? May we pray that we all, especially those in power on all sides, seek wisdom and ask God to help us shun the curses and do His will. Thank you very much. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and this is Dialogue Out Loud. My eyelashes were subtly coated in matte black mascara. On my cheeks, a light dusting of dusty rose-colored blush powder, just enough that I could feel comfortable and almost myself. On Tuesday, my visiting teacher said she knew I was really busy at work and brought over a casserole for dinner, the chief ingredient of which was... Zucchini. Maybe it isn't the Lamanite who needs to forsake the incorrect traditions of our forefathers. Maybe it's the belief of racial hierarchy that we need to forsake. Never learn to play the organ, the old woman told me. You might get a different calling from time to time. But make no mistake, once you get on the path of becoming a ward organist, that's what you'll be until you die. Each year, we bring you even more great fiction, personal essays, and poetry taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. We couldn't do this without your support. So thank you for reading, listening, and supporting Dialogue with your donations, subscriptions, or by simply leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For more content like this, or to get involved with Dialogue events, go to dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network.